Hi, everyone. We are Julia's parents, Antonio. And Jeannie. This week on the show. Host of The Takeaway, Tenzina Vega. And senior reporter of BuzzFeed News, Ryan Broderick. All right, let's start the show. Someday, someday. Bon dia. Bon dia. Bon dia, Julia's parents. Tanzina Vega. I love it. Hello, everyone Hello. from Hello. NPR. It's been a minute. I'm Julia Furlan, in for the illustrious Sam Sanders, who I hope is off dancing in the streets or something in Mexico. He deserves it. Sam, have a great time. My guests this week are... Tanzina Vega, host of The Takeaway on WMYC and general journalism hero of mine. And Ryan Broderick, senior reporter at BuzzFeed News and one of my favorite frenemies. Friends. We're friends. Okay, Ryan. We're friends, friends, Ryan. Welcome. Thank you for having us. As you know, every week we open the show with a song. This song, it's a Kanye song called Ghost Town. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Someday we gon' set it off Someday we gon' get this off Baby, don't you bet it off On a path of Did you know that Kanye this week is an architect? No. Oh. Yeah, that's huh. right. Like a real architect? Like no. Is it good? Okay. Well, so the reason we're talking about this is that this week Kanye... Basically, we got to see some structures that were built on Kanye's property in Calabasas. There are these rounded dome structures that were being built on the property, and they were supposedly prototypes for something called Yeezy Homes. Oh, boy. Oh, God. Wow. Kanye says that the structures were temporary, but there is strong evidence that they're actually meant to be low-income housing loosely based on a Star Wars aesthetic. Some sort of housing on Tatooine. So like Cappadocia-esque style. Yeah. I can totally see Kanye West accidentally reinventing Soviet-era brutalism. (laughs) I can, like, just by accident. Yeah. I mean, it's it's basically, like, one of these stories that, like, Kanye wants to solve, like, the 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 housing problem. But um, he was called out for construction noise going on at night. So, um, you know, they're getting taken down. They are getting taken. Wow, that was very quick. Yeah. (laughs) Well, listen, that's what happens when you build things like that in a rich people neighborhood. If he's freaking out of the rich people, I kind of like that. (laughs) That's kind of cool. And nothing hurts anymore. I feel kind of free. So, we are also doing something. Going to talk about the week in news in only three words. And this week, we cannot do that without focusing on El Paso and Dayton. Both of you have three words on the mass shootings that we are all still processing and still really working through. Tenzina, uh, you're up first. I just want to start by saying that I've been listening to your show, The Takeaway, and I really appreciate how The Takeaway has made space for the stories of the victims and really nailed the framing of this like really horrible story when especially a lot of the media did not really do that in the same way. And I appreciated all of it. Thank you. I mean, that that ties in perfectly to my three words. History, ignored, and fear. Yeah. So heavy, heavy three words. Yeah. Um, the first thing I thought of was that this isn't new, right? And historical perspective is necessary in this moment. And so one of my words is history. I mean, our history books in the United States are woefully 
woefully missing uh, entire pieces of history when it comes to race um, and the and the depth of what has happened to people of color. We tend to talk about race in a binary, yeah. black or white. But specifically, you know, I wanted to focus in on the uh, Mexicans who in the early 1900s, uh, 5,000 Mexicans were mm-hmm. either killed or disappeared yeah. in that time period, and particularly along the border. And not just by civilians, but also by state-sanctioned... State vigilantes, you know, state-sanctioned state violence. And another point I'll make on that is another story that we know affecting Latinos is Puerto Rico. It's been in the news for a while. Yeah. Um, and just, I recall post-Maria, the conversations that were being had among, you know, the the general population among journalists, which was like, what is Puerto Rico? Who are these folks? Oh are they citizens? Are they not? Are yeah, they? Everybody was all of a sudden in Puerto Rico first grade right. trying right. to learn like what. But we've been part of the U.S. since 1898. Like we didn't just get here. The racism against Puerto Ricans has been, you know, vitriolic for quite some time. And so yeah. those are just two examples of history that I wanted to point history. out. History, Yeah. And I think that it's important to in these moments where a lot of what happens when these horrible shootings occur is a certain like horrible pattern where we're we're used to a a regular sort of we're on autopilot Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that there's also latinx voices were really like sort of excluded from the conversation in a lot of ways this week Mm -hmm. um the el paso shooting was the largest terror attack against latinos in recent american history my colleague lulu garcia navarro wrote a wonderful piece in the atlantic that i'll definitely tweet later about how dismaying it is to see the lack of context in that particular way that all of the headlines were about uh, politics, about the president, and none were really focused on the folks who have historically been targeted by violence, and specifically in the state of Texas. Well, that's my second word. That's ignored. Yeah. Um, I was watching the Sunday shows, and... I watched and I said, well, wait a minute, where are any Latinos? Not even just like, you know, any journalists, any pundits. I mean, I think they were maybe one, two, perhaps, maybe on all of the major media uh, shows. And I just thought this is this is insane. And and here's the thing. Right. And I and I tweeted a lot about this. Um, I don't like the idea of bringing out the Latino voice to talk about the Latino issue. We shouldn't have to be, oh, we need to talk about immigration, so let's bring out somebody who's an immigrant or somebody who, I think that's fine, but we're not just here to serve as a cultural representative for, you know, and to fill in the box that you need to fill in on that day. So I don't advocate for that. I think this shows a deeper hole, and we've talked about this, I talk about this all the time, about the lack of diversity in media. Um, and, and it was just on full display. And again, I think it's because we look at race as a very binary conversation and we forget that there's so much other stuff going on. Right. Um, and so this was just, you know, something that that really needed to come to the surface. Absolutely. I think that it's important to have this conversation now so that we can address it and move on, which is what Lulu was saying in in her piece, too. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Julia Furlan, in for Sam Sanders. I'm here with my wonderful, wonderful guests, Tanzina Vega, host of The Takeaway from WMYC, and Ryan Broderick, senior reporter at BuzzFeed News. Hi. Hi. Ryan, it is your turn for your three words. What have you got? Angry online men. Mm. Um, I've been thinking a lot this week about the fact that we've had basically twin shootings that to me represent a spectrum that America is 
I think, even more terrified to, to address than white nationalism in this country. Uh, and it gets at the heart of some things that we really don't know how to handle as a country. And I think the most important one is that this is not only happening here. I think Americans are, I think, pathological in their inability to think about the rest of the planet. Myopic, yeah. I would say. <laughs> uh, I've spent a lot of time reporting overseas, particularly covering radicalization, platforms, and web culture. The website that the manifesto was posted on by the El Paso shooter, 8chan, is modeled after 2chan, 2channel or Nichan in Japan, which has produced its own domestic terrorists. South Korea has eBay Storehouse. Brazil has radicalized WhatsApp groups. Uh, Hindu nationalists in India have Twitter and a Google Doc they use for coordinating harassment. Oh, my God. Every country has this. The thing that I've sort of been shouting into the void about all week is that, like, we need to talk about gun rights. We need to talk about white nationalism. But the thing that I think everyone's really terrified to talk about is that it's men and it's what my generation of men think and feel about the world and we're seeing it manifested in a way that I don't know how you address it, but we have to start screaming it, right? I think. Right. And there's a lot of talk about sometimes the conversation ends with this idea of deplatforming, which is like the idea of shutting down controversial speakers on platforms like 8chan. And it happened this week, basically. Sort of. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about deplatforming? Sure. Um so after every one of these, uh, the horrible man puts his horrible thoughts on the internet, and then he goes and he does something horrific. And we say, well, it's the internet. You know, we got to get rid of that website. All the men are hanging out there. And we do. We knock it down. So either it's a subreddit on Reddit, or it's a, a 4chan message board, or in this case, the entirety of 8chan, which is a hyper-radicalized version of an already radicalized website called 4chan. Mm -hmm. And so... A bunch of journalists put a lot of pressure, myself included, on companies that were hosting or supporting 8chan uh, in any capacity. All the companies responded to pressure. They pulled their support. And immediately, the site went down. And now it's uh, going to metastasize. It's already popped back up uh, on a service called ZeroNet. Um, it's migrating to uh, chat applications like Telegram, Discord. That are not public in any way. They... I think that's another thing that frustrates me in all these conversations where it's like the dark web is coming for your children. It's like, no, A-chan <laughs> it, it, had like a URL. You could just type it in. It's very easy. Right. Um, and and I, I should be careful because I don't want to be like, don't deplatform or deplatforming doesn't work. But deplatforming a person is a lot different than deplatforming basically ghosts. A-chan doesn't have any usernames. They don't have any ownership over what they do. They don't even really have a login. You just sort of visit and then you can write whatever you want. It's like a bathroom stall. Knocking down a bathroom stall doesn't get rid of graffiti. You know, knocking yeah, or down sexism. or sexism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, it's and, and, and I also want to be careful because I don't want to be like, you shouldn't be able to express yourself freely or anonymously. I think that's really important. Um, but if you're left to your own devices for too long, it becomes like Lord of the Flies. And yeah. it just gets really messy, I think. Have Tanzina, did you hear from listeners who were talking about men and misogyny in particular? Or toxic, Not toxic as much as we expected, but I think that might have been, we didn't frame the story exactly in that way. Right. Um, I think that's something that, that does have to be looked at because to your point, um, this is a lot of, these are a lot of angry men online. I mean, that is where this is stemming from. And that seems to be the constant factor in all of these shootings, if not most of these shootings, right, is this rage 
um, that these men have towards, you know, women or the girls in school or the people who wouldn't talk to them or their friends who've isolated them. And that, to me, gets to a core issue that in this country we have yet to examine. Ryan, I guess you've been mucking around in these communities for long enough. (laughs) Um, You've said that you don't have any solutions, but do you have any ideas of uh, paths forward or things that um, could help? Yes, uh, sort of. Uh, it's not. It's uh, it's unfortunately small scale, but I think a lot of solutions are, for this are going to have to be. But I uh, I did a presentation in the UK last year, and I did I did kind of this conversation. I described how online radicalization happens, and afterwards, uh, a kid in the classroom messaged me and he said, "Hey, I want to let you know. Uh, so I'm 21. I didn't know what had happened to me until I saw you talk about it." <gasps> Wow. And apparently, and this is, you have to think about this. So we are, uh, next week is the five-year anniversary of the Gamergate movement, which was the harassment campaign against female journalists in the video game industry that mm-hmm. kicked off essentially the modern far right that we're talking about right now. This kid was 14 when he came across Gamergate on a, on a message board and became a hardcore Gamergate activist online. And, he's, and he described the process of radicalizing to me. And then he described the process of how he de-radicalized, which was that basically all of his friends were like, you need to stop <laughs> and you need to right. like go outside and you need to like chill. Yeah. And they were kinder than I'm being right now. And, and, I, and I thanked him for even messaging me. I said, like, you messaging me, that is one of the bravest things that I've ever encountered in my career doing this sort of work, because you typically don't get that from people who go through this. Yeah. And now he wants to be a journalist. He wants to write about this stuff. He wants to sort of talk about what's happened to him. Mm-hmm. I, I think it has to be that level for a lot of this. Like right? bystander inter- intervention is essentially what you're talking about. Yeah, it's- I think it has to come from, I mean, it sounds so corny, but it has to come from a, a place of communication and a place of respect and a place, I don't want to say you can't like push back against racists because you have to be able to say that this is not okay. But there also has to be a community approach to people who are on that line and you have to catch them. Right. Before they flip. Yeah. I mean, white people gather your people or people Where gather your people. Where are our community yeah. leaders? Oh, God. Why haven't well, our community leaders been brought out and talked about what's going on in our community? No, but it, uh, yeah, we... But you're not wrong. I, I'm, yeah. You're not wrong, <laughs> yeah. though. That's part of it. I mean, it, you know, there, there, is a, there is a pathological lack of empathy here. The, the, the crisis, the economic anxiety crisis for a lot of white Americans was real. Um, it became politicized. Um, there was a yes. drug crisis in, in white America. There was a job loss crisis in white America, and per- particularly poor and rural white America. What happened was we were asked to empathize with that community and not see the politics for what it was and how this community was essentially being taken advantage of. Um, what we weren't, we've never been asked to do is to empathize with black and brown people who've suffered, you know, even worse indignities when it comes to job loss and drug addiction and et cetera, et cetera, and policies and redlining and et cetera. And so there's mm-hmm. this empathy gap that exists in our country that that until we begin to stop otherizing each other and start understanding that really poor people in America have the short end of the stick. But if you're white and poor, you still have an advantage over people who are black and brown and poor. Right. And that has to be the starting point. It's not about, oh, this person doesn't work as hard and this one doesn't. Yeah. You look at the data, you look at the numbers, the wealth gap says it all. Whites have 13 times the wealth that blacks do in this country, period. That's the number. I mean, that's right. the number, right? right? And that's the the long term impact of everything going back to slavery. So, you know, I I tend to look at numbers, but who's listening? I don't know. Well, our listeners are listening. I hope so. so. Um, time for a break. Let's take a deep breath. 
<sighs> You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We will be right back. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment at your convenience. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to learn more. I'm Shankar Vedantam, host of NPR's Hidden Brain. Think deeply. Here to tell you about our summer series, U2.0. Ideas and advice about how you can respond to life's chaos. Just do it. Just check to my inbox. Just check. Just check. Just check to my phone real quick. With wisdom. Listen to Hidden Brain every week. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Julia Furlan, a hologram of Sam Sanders gone horribly wrong. Hello again to my <laughs> wonderful guests, Tanzina Vega, host of The Takeaway from WMYC. Listen to it. It's wonderful. Thank you. Ryan Broderick, senior reporter at BuzzFeed News. Read his stuff. It's wonderful. Thank you. Did you see the story about how actor Danny Trejo saved a baby from an overturned car this Was that week. a real story? It was a real oh, story. Is this, is this, a, is this like from like a Russian chaos agent <laughs> planted on Facebook? Is this real? It's not. And was it's he real. really shirtless? He in was shirtless okay. in the Wait, interview. why was he shirtless? He did this interview and talking about it and he's just not wearing a shirt. So I pulled him out and I said, I thank God because he was a special needs uh, and my kid's mom works with special needs kids. So I kind of dealt with them. So I said, okay, 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 it's okay. And he was panicked. And I said, okay, we have to use our superpowers. And so he screamed, superpowers. And we started like yelling superpowers. And, I'm going to cry. I know, I know, I know. Oh my God, we need that. We need Danny so Trejo. Many. We need multiple Danny Trejos. I know. Why That's was amazing. he not wearing a shirt there? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> because he's Danny Trejo and you don't ask him questions like that, okay? Maybe he Respect before was just him. like, yo, I'm going to pop this off real quick. Yeah. <laughs> like, go for it. I just want to say Danny Trejo should play a superhero very soon. Representation, baby. That is <laughs> the next word in my script. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. Okay, moving on to some big news here. Victoria's Secret just hired its first transgender model for a catalog photo shoot. The model is Brazilian and beautiful, like all Brazilians are. I'm Brazilian. <laughs> just kidding. Her name is Valentina Sampaio. And that is not the only bit of news. The brand's chief marketing officer, Ed Razek, announced earlier this week that he would be leaving the company. He was criticized last year for making remarks about transgender people and plus-size women in regards to Victoria's Secret's fashion show. The company has been struggling recently, uh, struggling for revenue and for cultural relevance. Jordan Holman and her colleagues at Bloomberg recently published a super insightful piece about all of it. She told me that the origin story of Victoria's Secret gives a big hint as to why the brand feels increasingly out of touch today. Right. So Victoria's Secret got founded in 1977 by a man named Roy Raymond. And so it was after he went to a department store to buy some lingerie for his wife, he didn't love that experience. Um, and he felt that there could be a store where men felt comfortable buying women's underwear and lingerie. So obviously, uh, Victoria's Secret today has morphed into one of the largest companies for selling women's lingerie. It still has um, the majority of the market in that area. But if, it, if you go back to his founding principles, it was never really made with women in mind other than just this is their the end product that they're going to wear. 
Right. And it, the company's lost $20 billion in market value in the last couple of years, right? Yes. So $20 billion in market value in, since 2015. Um, and that was around the same time that their female CEO left the company. Um, and then it just uh, they made some product assortment changes. A man currently runs the company. And, and in that time, they've had a lot of competitors come into the space. So you have Rihanna's line. You have Third Love and some other e-commerce lines come in um, that have grabbed some of their customers away. Right. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about the news this week, which is that Victoria's Secret hired their first uh, trans model, Valentina Sampaio. She's Brazilian and beautiful, as all Brazilians are. Yeah. I'm Brazilian. Um, so <laughs> um, do you think that a move like this towards like slightly more diversity is enough to sort of like help the failing sales and and lack of relevancy of the brand? Yeah, I think customers across the board are just asking for more diversity, more representation of what they look like. And so this move on Victoria's Secret part to uh, include the first transgender model in one of their advertising campaigns definitely speaks to that. Um, it's also, you, you think back to November when their former chief marketing officer, he says that, you know, the company had considered using a transgender model in their fashion show, but decided against it. So this is also coming, you know, in the wake of that. So, right. He's like sort of correcting an action that he got a lot of flack for a couple months ago. Right. And it was a very public criticism that they face and you know just for clarification the model isn't necessarily going to be in the fashion show but will be in you know an advertising campaign so i think any like step towards the company showing that they want to be more diverse and inclusive is a signal uh that they kind of get it that they kind of understand that customers are serious about this Right. And we should also say that they canceled their fashion show, which was their big sort of like blowout, um, I don't know, performance of sexy brand. <laughs> so Victoria's Secret earlier this year said that they were going to pull their fashion show from network TV, which is aired on since 1995. And they're going to give it a rethink. So a lot of people think that their show will move to streaming or some other platform like that. Uh, and, and so I think that's just another example of the company just reconsidering how they do business and trying to find their customers where they are. Right. Um, one more thing that I think we should talk about here is that the news about Jeffrey Epstein, um, you know, Jeffrey Epstein is connected to the company in a couple of ways. Um, he allegedly posed as a talent scout for Victoria's Secret and was abusing women. Um, he had power of attorney over the the CEO of, of Wexler, right, at one point? Yes. Um, wh- what does the Epstein connection mean for the brand's financial picture? Do, you, do we have any ideas about that yet? It's still very unclear what the current situation and financial situation is with Epstein and Wexler. But at one point, Epstein invested some money in the modeling agency that Victoria's Secret uses to get its models for the fashion show. So it's just more so this like cloud of Epstein is around um, this company. And so a lot of uh, like crisis management experts I talk to is like the company needs to be very clear about what the current ties are because that right now is, is not made clear. Right. It's sort of like the Epstein connection is is a little bit vague and uncertain. But we should specify that like no financial connection has actually been made officially. Correct. 
you know, how how do you take this company that was founded by and for men and shift it to say this is an inclusive brand, regardless of your size, your gender presentation, your race? I mean, how do you do that if you're Victoria's Secret? I think that's a really difficult question uh, or it's just a difficult thing to do. I think starting one with who's at the table making the decision. So you diversify the managers and diversify your executive board. And so it's, it's getting women at the table. It's really kind of across the, the board. And earlier in February, I believe, they said that they are reconsidering all parts of the business and, and really being real about that and, and being open to changing that. But they can't swing the pendulum too far because then it will feel inauthentic. Um, right. It would be really, it's a tough needle to thread if you're Victoria's Secret in 2019. Super tough needle to thread, but I think, you know, we were talking about the model they hired earlier this week. Um, the first transgender model, I think you, by step by step, you kind of start changing your brand and you start um, showing people like, hey, we think this is cool too. We're, we're expanding what we think of as beauty. Um, it just probably shouldn't happen all at once. Jordan, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Jordan Holman and her colleagues, Kim Basin, Sophie Alexander, and Anders Malin for their piece on Bloomberg titled, Victoria's Secret Has More Than a Jeffrey Epstein Problem. I'm Julia Furlan, back here with my panelists, Ryan Broderick and Tanzina Vega. Ryan, I see that you've worn your full Victoria's Secret angel wings into yeah. the studio this morning. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually kind of upset that uh, this studio couldn't fit the bigger wings, so I had to wear the smaller wings this morning. I know. It was a bold choice, though. I'm really, I appreciate it. I didn't know it. I was going to do the interview. I was just already wearing them. Do you remember what a big deal Victoria's Secret was back in the day with, like, the pink... I am a child of uh, an era before both of you. So, yes, I, I distinctly remember <laughs> Victoria's Secret. And I remember how critical it was um, in the 90s. Yeah. But like Ryan, they were saying that Victoria's Secret was started for the male gaze, but also for men. Mm. To yeah, buy to feel things. comfortable. Purchasing. You're welcome, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> do dudes that you know, or is that like on their? Oh, I'm going to Victoria's Secret oh, to God. go get. I mean, it's funny whatever. you talked about like remembering when it like <laughs> first appeared, and I do remember like being a uh, 10, 11, going to the mall. And doing that thing where you don't look at Victoria's <laughs> Secret, but you definitely are looking at Victoria's Secret. Because right. you're with your mom, you're, and you, you walk past it. It's, it's almost like watching a sex scene in a movie with your parents. And you just like hold your breath. And you're just like. I don't want to acknowledge it. I don't want to acknowledge uh, I'm it. I'm just looking at the, they have a little dog in the window. And I'm looking at that. It's fine. Not the giant photo of the woman in underwear. Um, yeah. yeah. But it, it is funny how that backfires where yeah. you make a thing to like prop up femininity, but then you make it too feminine and then the men are too scared to go in. Yeah. yeah. You know? Because they um, don't even know what's being sold. Right. There? They're like, wait, am I, is there body cream? Like what's going on? That's Angel true. wings. Yeah. Okay, time for a break. When we come back, we will play the hardest game in the world. Oh, God. Who said that? Oh, God. Uh. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We will be right back. Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. The world is complicated, but knowing the past can help us understand it so much better. That's where we come in. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablouei, and we're the hosts of Throughline, 
NPR's History Podcast. Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our world. Throughline from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Julia Furlan. My guests, Tanzina Vega, host of The Takeaway from WMYC, and Ryan Broderick, senior reporter at BuzzFeed News. Hi, friends. Hello. Hi. Are you ready for the main game? I think so. Okay. Maybe. We are going to play Who Said That? Who said that? In this game, I will give you a quote from a news story of the week, and you have to figure out who said the quote. Um, You can get close. (laughs) Um, And the points are all made up by me. So um, Great. And the prizes are unspeakably wonderful. Can I get a tote bag? (laughs) Um, I will... Talk to people. I will see. No. The the tote bag guy? No, you don't get a tote bag. Oh, man. Okay. Are you ready for your first quote? Ready. The quote is, they are actually a huge problem. They are very harmful for farmers because when they eat, they upturn the ground to get things out. What is this quote about? Feral hogs. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Um, Ryan, do you want to take a stab at, in like 10 seconds, explaining what the feral hogs is? I've been waiting, like, I'm glad we (laughs) talked about other stuff on this show, but this is why I'm here right now. Uh, so, uh, there was a Twitter conversation about banning assault weapons and not needing assault weapons following the shootings last weekend, and a very earnest conservative Twitter user replied to this thread with, well, you know, basically... I need assault weapons to mow down the 30 to 50 feral hogs that uh, come into my yard and attack my children, Um, which is an incredibly relatable problem. On the way here, I fought through at least a dozen feral hogs with my bare hands because New York State makes it too hard to get a gun. And we should say that the quote that I read is from Evan Wood, who's an editor for Missouri Life magazine, who's covered hog problems in his state. (laughs) He was speaking to the Guardian newspaper. And he was talking about, yeah, 30 to 50 feral hogs. Um, it it was a little bit of levity that we needed. It was a little corner of jokes that people made. <laughs> Another quote from Evan Wood, the hog expert, said, if you go after them with a gun, your chances of getting all of them at once are pretty much nil, even if there are only like 10 of them. I saw a really good piece that was arguing that actually assault weapons are not very good for killing hogs. And what you're supposed to do is uh, feed them tannerite so they explode. Oh, my oh God. Because their hide is too thick I to shoot. No. Oh, I, I skip it. God. I'm going to skip I'm that good. song. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. Uh, if you guys want to learn more about feral hogs and how to kill them, my Twitter <laughs> name nope. is uh, nope. at Broderick. <laughs> no one follow Ryan. Um, okay. Are you ready for your second one? Ready. Yes. Okay. The quote is, Somehow they managed to find a way to add mushrooms to almost everything. I know this one too. Okay, so this is from an Ask Polly this week what? Uh, about I a wo- <laughs> about a woman who basically was describing that every time she goes over to her in laws' house, oh. she has a deathly bad mushroom yes. allergy, and they are trying to kill her with mushrooms. Yes, I should say it's a column. Ask Polly love, is a column by. Lo- we've had Heather on the show. Before. Heather Heverleski. Yes. I love Heather Heverleski too. A, a truly wonderful yeah. writer and advice giver in all the ways. But the re- the letter writer has a life-threatening allergy to mushrooms and she asks Polly what to do to convince her in-laws that her allergy is real and how to manage the rift that she is supposedly causing. Let me just, I'm just going to read a little bit more from this letter because it's it's, so wild. Okay, ready? (laughs) 
One time, they made a point to make a special plate of mushrooms and pass it around. My mother-in-law said, very rudely, I would have liked to add mushrooms directly to the salad, but somebody has problems with it. They even added mushroom powder to the mashed potatoes at one holiday dinner. Okay, nobody does that. I know. I don't care who you are. Also, there's a line in the piece where she says, like, yeah, they didn't even like mushrooms very much. And now it's like all mushrooms all the time. She should give them special mushrooms. I know. And see how they like that. It's really wild. The response article, though, is is actually wildly profound. I was reading it last night on the train. And there's there's a description in there of the sort of sociopathy of a group and how it forms. I really can't recommend that article enough. It's great. All right. Okay. Uh, Ryan, you have negative five points. Tanzina, you have 20 points. That's, that's what I've decided. That's I have that's none fair. of the points. That's fair. <laughs> I have none of the Just points. Just kidding. I mean, Ryan. actually, if anything, I'm losing because I spend too much time on the internet. So <laughs> That's true. Okay, our final quote. This one is for all the points. Quote is, I did have two king cobras and they were not happy. They would try to hypnotize me by showing me their backs. <sighs> And then they'd lunge at me. Nicholas to- Cage! Oh! Tanzina! Yes! Do you yes. want to talk about Do you want to? I mean, I'll be honest, they haven't read the whole uh, <laughs> diatribe, do you want yes. to call it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's I, like it's, a holy text. It's yeah. very, <laughs> it is a Nicholas Cage interview in New York Times Magazine. Yes. And he was asked about his public persona versus his. <laughs> IRL persona, and there is a lot of uh, the Venn diagram is big in between the two of them. Very random. My favorite part of the interview is that he, so every line isn't totally nuts, (laughs) but then there's this one section that is like totally fine and normal. And can I read it? Yeah. Okay. So um, he says, at this point in my life, David, I just heavily prefer not to go out. I'd rather just stay at home. I don't think I can decompress ever again, even at a karaoke bar. It's too vulnerable. I'm not trying to complain. <laughs> it's a fact of life I have to accept. Okay, totally normal. And then he finishes it with, oh. <laughs> Rob Zombie once said to me, be as normal in your own life as you can be so that you can be as messed up as you want in your art. I love that it's like a totally normal response. He's like, oh, and then Rob Zombie told me. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Yeah, I mean, it's really all on the record. There's the cobras. He purchased a dinosaur skull for two hundred and seventy six thousand dollars. That was sad. Then he had to return it because he got caught up in that like black market of yeah, yeah. yeah. He owns a burial pyramid in Louisiana. I'm gonna just declare this a tie because the Nicolas Cage (laughs) one was such a good one. Yeah. Um, There are no prizes. I'm so sorry. That's all right. You the prize is being with you. Everybody wins in this game of who said that. We appreciate that. Yes. (laughs) So before we move on, um, the world lost an absolute giant this week. Toni Morrison died at the age of 88. And I wanted to take a moment to ask you, too, if you have something that particularly moved you about Toni to talk about. I I know I do. Yes. Tanzina, why don't you start? Toni Morrison uh, was, as many of us know, a single mom raising two boys, uh, two children, and that, and she published her first novel um, almost at the age of forty in her late thirties. And she talked. What's resonated with me as a woman of color working in very white spaces often is her advice on how to deal with work and um, and the advice, the conversation that she had with her father. I'm going to go through it really quickly. She says, yeah. number one, whatever the work is, do it well. I 100% believe in that. Not for the boss, but for yourself. Number two, you make the job. It doesn't make you. We have to remember that. Number three, your real life is with us, your family. And number four, you are not the work you do. You are the person you are. So that has always stayed with me. Thank you, Tony. Ryan? I 
Oh, uh, I'm a white guy from Massachusetts. I I'm sorry. Uh, I you know <laughs> I suffer for it every day. Uh, and uh, my freshman year of college, I ended up in this course called Comparative Hybrid Identities in Comparative Literature, and Sula was on the list. Right. And I think about lines in that book all of the time, and not even like profound ones, but just like turns of phrases. She describes someone um, as you know feeling soft, and how people who are used the most feel soft the same way a pillow does mm. if you sleep on it for too much. Like yeah. little bits of dialogue like that that just get stuck in your head. And she's just such a powerful writer in a way where I, I felt completely inside of these characters in a way that like I could feel like being in them. And nice. uh, yeah, also her quotes are just amazing. Like yeah. amazing. Yeah, I Truly. yeah I loved this one that I saw going around this week that was, um, I tell my students, when you get these jobs, you have been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job is that if you are free, you need to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. This is not just a grab bag candy game. And that I wrote down on a post-it note and I put it in my cubicle because that is something that I think, you know, as, as somebody in media and as somebody who is Latinx and trying to open doors wherever possible, I want to make it better for the people who come after me. And I, I, I don't know. I, it was a really heavy week. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> it was hard. It was hard, yeah. but amen to that. Yeah, yeah. Now it is time, my friends, to end the show as we always do. Each Friday, we ask you to share with us the best thing that happened to you all week. And I cannot wait to hear. Let's listen to the best things. This is Meg from Richmond, Virginia. And the best thing that happened to me this week was getting a letter from my almost seven-year-old nephew, Isaac. Uh, We're pen pals this summer, and it has just been the absolute best. Thanks. It's Sarah from Rock Island, Illinois. The best thing that happened this week was kicking off my 40th birthday month, seeing my favorite band with my favorite guy, my husband, Rob. This is Emily in Columbus, Ohio, and the best part of my week was getting to drive to Kentucky to rescue a puppy to surprise my two daughters. Her name is Mabel, and they were over the moon. Hey, this is Jason. And this is Patrick. And we're calling from Chicago. Four years ago, we started an adoption process. In January, our newborn son, William, came home. This week, we received an order from a judge declaring the adoption permanent. It's our forever day. It's Nick Penning in Arlington, Virginia. The best part of my week was our daughter came to town with her boyfriend. And with our conversation, I got a much different perspective, a better perspective on politics and life. It's always good to hear what the younger generation has to say and to listen to their views and not just talk about mine all the time. This is Kristen from Houston, Texas. And the best thing that happened to me was getting to talk to my biological father for the very first time. It's been 34 years in the making and I am just on cloud nine. And coming from an only child, being an only child, now knowing I have siblings and a huge family that's welcoming me, it's just amazing and I'm ecstatic. So can't wait to see what's next and love your show. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Bye. You're a little bit of, yeah, I yeah. always cry. <laughs> a little bit of tenderness for a week that we need it. Thank you so much to those listeners, Meg, Sarah, Emily, Jason and Patrick, Nick, and Kristen. And thanks to all the listeners who share their best things with us every week. We do listen to every single one, even when we can't include them here on the show. 
Thank you again to my guests, Tanzina Vega, host of The Takeaway from WMYC, and Ryan Broderick, senior reporter at BuzzFeed News. We're going to go out on some Kanye. This is Ghost Town once again to note that Kanye is probably going to have to take down his prototypes for low-income housing, inspired by Star Wars. Yeah, but this final outro, let me tell you, it rules. (laughs) It will never be taken down. It's perfect. It's Been a Minute was produced this week by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry with help from Sophia Boyd. Our editors are Jordana Hochman and Alex McCall. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss, the senior vice president of programming at NPR, is Anya Grundman. Okay, friends, until next time, thank you so much for listening. I had a wonderful time sitting in for Sam Sanders. I'm Julia Furlan. Bye. Someday we gon' set it off Someday we gon' get this off Baby, don't you bet it off On a path of fentanyl You might think they wrote you off They gon' have to roll me off